Okay, this morning as you are sitting there, uh, take your Bibles again, turn to Second Peter, and we are looking at um, specifically the verses at the end of First Peter, verses um, 19 to 21. I'll get there, but I want to because I was away for a week, I want to just reiterate where where we ha- were and where we're going so um, we get the sense on where the text is taking us today. And the, the title I put on this text is really Remembering Who is Coming, because ultimately the thing Peter is doing here is getting people to focus their attention and their mind on the understanding that Christ is coming, and never to forget that. Live every day with that on your mind. And so we have been looking at the seven qualities that were to add to our faith in verse 5 through 7, from moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And then, of course, that led to a goal. The goal was to be more useful, to be more productive, in your Christian life, and of course that productiveness and effectiveness that God wants in our lives is our increased ability to think and act like Christ. That also means that we can um, fall off that path and be disobedient to it. We can be be disobedient to the goal, and that means if we are, we're going to lack uh, these qualities, and we are going to actually be lacking in the qualities where we are not seeing spiritually and we are, in a sense, spiritually blind. And the idea is that these people uh, see only what is in front of them and they are really blind to the, the reality of their spiritual condition before God. And that also leads to a bad memory uh, in the sense they forget where and what Christ has rescued them from and that means uh, they actually says here that they, in verse number 9, this person forgets his purification. That means uh, the spiritual cleansing that was done for the believer by the finished work of Christ. They forget that. And the reason why they forget that is because they are letting their passions and to guide them and letting the world conform them. And then we know from... Second Peter, the influence of the false teachers, they're taking on teaching that is not uh, object, objective truth, but actually subjective experience. They're putting more emphasis on that than the truth. And so these people are really returning in some way to their own way of uh, their past, their former way of living. They, they are ignoring uh, by their behavior, their sins that they have been cleansed from. So they're failing really to focus on God. They're failing to focus on uh, others. They are really stepping out of the realm of light, walking in darkness. And of course, they become useless, unfruitful, and lack assurance because of that. Now, I will say this again, that Peter is, is writing to remind the recipients of his letter that this condition is not a reality amongst them right now, but it could become a reality if they don't meet the conditions, and if the, in, the false teachers have their way by misrepresenting and mis-maligning uh, truth uh, and getting them to listen and follow their ungodliness, then they will become more f- forgetful of the truth 
and that will rob them of their assurance. That's why he comes up in verse number 10, and he gives them an exhortation to make sure that you're a believer. Make sure that you're called by him, by Christ. Make sure you're chosen by Christ. Now, how would you know that? Well, you would know that by verse number 10. You practice these things. It says there in verse number uh, 10 that as, as long for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So there's a promises that comes with uh, pursuing these qualities and adding them to your life, and that is we're cooperating with the Spirit of God in sanctification for making us into the image of Christ. There's assurance of salvation that comes, right? And that also means that they will never stumble. Uh, now, that rem- I already said that doesn't mean that they'll never sin. What it means is that they will be able to keep up and keep growing and maturing in Christ-likeness. And when they do sin, they will confess their sin, uh, and they will not get caught in habitual sin. Um, because they have been called by God, and they have been chosen by God, and because of that, God enters into the battle with us. And of course, the other promise was that they would have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God, and so that means that they'll... It's really never implied that we earn heaven. No, it's all by God's grace. I've mentioned that. Uh, So here... It just gives the believer an opportunity to uh, know that they can enter into the kingdom of God and it can be a grand entrance. And, of course, he's prodding them on not to ever want to live just by getting by as a believer, just making it into the kingdom. He doesn't want, to, want them to live, want us to live on the low road. He wants us to live on the plane of maturity, not on the plane of just being an infant all the time, where we lack visibility of the uh, seven qualities, where we can't see spiritually. He wants us to be on the road where we know that we're called and elected. We are abounding in these things. We are not barren or unfruitful. We are actually growing and bearing fruit in all kinds of ways because of what the Spirit of God is doing in us, and that we have that promise that we'll never fall because we can see. And Christians will make a steady progress as they practice the word of God. So Christians who do not lack diligence and they do not, are not idle, they have every right to be assured of their salvation. And that's the spirit of God's job is to give us assurance. So then the exhortation ultimately would be that if you will have spiritual success in time, and in congratulations in eternity, then you will take the road in which you are maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ and developing these seven vital qualities in your life. And if you do, you will be effective. You will have an abundant Christian life and plenty of assurance. Now, at the same time, if there is no spiritual growth ever, there's no spiritual life. That means you're still dead in sin. That means you're not a believer. All right. So that could be the case too. Why someone's not bearing fruit or even desiring to grow in these things. They, they just are not a believer. They may have professed Christ, but there's the spirit of God don't, does not indwell them and they don't really have any desire 
for the things of God. So the Lord wants us to move on and get on the track and on the road in which we are growing. And he says in verse number 10, one way we do that is, is therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. It's this whole understanding of being diligent. Uh, and of course, it is because all the recipients of this epistle are reminded that they live in a world where there are many dangers. And here it is the danger of being led astray and become come under the influence of teachers who believe that uh, immorality would not incur divine judgment. And so he doesn't want them to think like that. But he also doesn't want them to think like they know everything or they've arrived. We should never think like that as a believer. But to be humble in order to be reminded on, um, on these things that we already know because we are prone to forget. So Peter is saying here, I'm going, to, I'm going to take the rest of my life in writing Second Peter to remind you to keep diligent because we need to be reminded because we, have, we are prone to forget. So the implications of remembering are found in verse 12 through 15. And of course, those implications were threefold. Number one, it says in verse 12, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. So he, the first thing is that the first implication of remembering is remembering really retains our increase, incre- our desire to increase in godliness, that when everybody's gone they will be established in the truth. They will be able to live on their own. Also, in verse 13 and 14, remembering will arouse our passions, where it says uh, in verse number number 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir stir you up by way of reminder. So to stir up us up is that's what he's doing also. He wants to keep our passions stirred up uh, because he wants his readers to be immovable in the truth, uh, which is available to them and that they have already been established in, he means, the teaching of the prophets, uh, the Old Testament, and the apostles, the New Testament. And why does Peter remind them not to be negligent of something they already knew? Well, it is because that uh, the journey of life is short. We have very little time, so let's not waste it. And then secondly, death is sure. And he says here in verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ had made clear to me. So the constant repetition of a thing, of a teaching, until it becomes part of us, is at the heart and soul of all good learning. We always have to be mentioning something and be taught something we already know because we're building on it. So there is a knowledge which is so crucial for our well-being spiritually that we cannot afford to forget it. And we can't afford to forget that we have been, what we have been learning from the Word of God. And if there is one area of knowledge we need to be reminded of over and over again is the need for spiritual truths. 
that the Apostle Peter, as he nears the end of his earthly life, writes Second Peter for the purpose of reminding his readers of needed spiritual truth, reminding his readers, his readers of what God has said in his word, and so that word would stick in their minds. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, for this, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he is saying to them, listen, I want you to remember the word of God that it sticks in your mind and that you never forget it. There's another implication of remembering, and that is it reinforces us being ready where it says in verse 15, and I, and I also will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And that was his goal, that they themselves would be ready to call all these things to mind, meaning that you don't need any new, new truth. You don't need any new experiences. What you need and what I need and what everybody needs in the church is to gain a clearer understanding of the eternal truths of God that has already been revealed in the Word of God. And why does he do that? So you'll be able when your teachers and your mentors are no longer around, to call these things to your mind yourself because you are so ingrained with the truth. So Peter knew there were some heavy-duty false teachings right around the corner, and these teachers who mocked the idea of a powerful, heavenly Christ who indwells his people by his spirit and strengthens them for present godly living, he knew the false teachers would turn that on its head. And so Peter did not want his disciples to be carried away by the precarious tide of false doctrine and those who propagate it so that they don't lose their footing in the truth and fall prey to it, where he says in chapter 3, verse 17, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard, on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men falling from your own steadfast. So false teachers are definitely in our day. They're all over their place, and they have a prominent voice on the radio, on live stream, on media, in books. And, and so it's there we need to discern these unprincipled teachers who deny Christ in, by their sensual ways, and also they deny Christ in their teaching, both. And because of that, they actually slander, twist, and misuse the word of God. And so we have to have people that are going to inform us to remember in the right way. And that's what Peter says. The apostle says in verse 16 onward, he gives us the informants for remembering. And what are they? Well, they are, first of all, the apostolic witness and experience is one thing, and then the other thing is the actual prophetic word. Now, I want to just go back and look at verse 16, because he says, Remember what I have not taught you, or 
followed. And that is in verse number 16. He says that, listen, you did, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. And I mentioned last time that these have to do with myths and legends and fables. Um, and these are actually opposite of the words for word. Uh, they're, they're actually opposite of the word declaration and they're opposite of the word truth. So these fables were really far fetched stories, usually of a religious nature about the gods of the nations steeped in pagan, pagan practices, whether it be Jewish fables or you find things in the Talmud, you find things in the Apocrypha, you find things in Greek myths. And so all over scripture, you'll find even the other apostles mentioning that he's saying, listen, certain men to stay away from who teach strange doctrines. Don't pay attention to them. Their myths and their endless genealogies. And then he said that some in the end will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It's happening today. Also, false teachers scoff at the teaching of the prophets and the apostles of Jesus Christ about specifically his coming. The false teachers could have taught uh, the incarnation and the resurrection and the coming kingdom just were mere stories, nothing to take too seriously. See, false teachers were were so locked into their present pleasures and the pleasures of this life that the thought of God's future coming kingdom was a absolute blur to their greedy hearts and their corrupt desires. So with their clouded minds, the second coming seemed like a made-up story. And Peter, of course, calls these teachings destructive heresies. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So they're, they're going to bring it in the back door. They're going to bring it in subtly. And they're going to bring it in in a uh, more of a charismatic way. And uh, usually brought in by people who are charismatic in their character. And people gravitate to that, thinking that is truth, without measuring it with the word of God. So we have received the truth. We have received the life. We have received the way that the Lord's given us. And, of course, the Apostle Paul saw and experienced, excuse me, the Apostle Peter, James, and John experienced the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way no one, no three people ever have. And that's what he says in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is saying here, listen, it is by this power that we experience with Christ the very power who created the world and called it into existence the very power that has authority you see in the Gospels over demons and they flee, the one who has authority over uh, the ungodly and brings them by the power of the Gospel to a pure and a holy life, the God who even when coming in contact with diseases causes them to disappear at his will. So Peter, Peter's experience uh, with Jesus 
was an awesome power and was given an unforgettable imitation or invitation or uh, initiation into the mystery of Christ's person and got a preview of Christ's eschatological return in glory. So the word coming in the word in verse number 16 is actually the word used in other places. Parousia is the Greek word, and it often is used of a arrival of a visiting king or someone who has great authority, and it's announced ahead of time before they come. It's heralded by those who are his servants, and they come to proclaim someone is coming. And Peter is saying, listen, what is he talking about anyway? He's talking about we had a first-hand experience about what happened, uh, about Christ coming. And it says in Second Peter 1, verse 16 through 18, just read that with me along. It says uh, in the verse number 16, it says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So this is the Father's witness of the character and the work of his Son, that he was well pleased with his Son. And, and so this was a real experience that Peter, James, and John experienced in the presence of God. It was no dream here, was no vision it was a genuine, authentic experience, and in that experience was the Mount of Transfiguration. That's when the Lord brought them to this high mountain and selected a private place, and he was transfigured right before their eyes. And, of course, God changed Jesus' form, allowing his pre-incarnate glory to shine through his human features as a foretaste of his coming exaltation. So this event of the Transfiguration, Figuration enabled the disciples to see more clearly, to see Jesus' power and glory, especially the power and glory that would come. And they're getting, they're getting a glimpse of it. They would see Jesus' true nature that foreshadows not only his first coming, because he was also there in his humanity and his humiliation, but also in his future coming and glory and power. And not only that, we saw in the text last time, or in Mark chapter 9, that even his clothing was transformed, where it says, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. See, his garments are described as white and glistening like nothing that could be produced here on earth. He, Jesus had a super heavenly whiteness that was uncommon, unseen by human beings, and what his disciples were actually seeing was the glory of Christ. The glory of Jesus was inherent glory. It is not like the reflected glory that human beings have or creation has, or even the glory that Moses shone on Moses' face in the Old Testament. The glory they saw the light that they witnessed was not falling on him from above, but seemed to be coming out from him. 
out from Christ himself that he was not reflecting the light, he was actually producing the light. So the glory, God's glory is his own and proceeds from within the very nature of his majestic deity, that the deity of Jesus Christ is bursts forth before his disciples from within, showing forth who he was, that he was God, that Christ is the brightness of the glory of God, and that glory is reflected from within him, not from outside of him, and confirmed before Jesus, before the disciples that Jesus is God and that Jesus is coming again in all his glory. And so they got a glimpse of that. Now, in Scripture here, what a great and historical and reliable experience these disciples had. But however, no matter how awesome and and extraordinary the experience is with the disciples, there is something more sure and more reliable than that experience. See, false religions and false teachers are often interwined with spurious, unverifiable visions and voices, with Satan as the puppet master, and Satan is the counterfeit of all new prophetic visions and teachings, which he just repackages as the word of God. And false teachers really depend on experience that cannot be verified and usually never is verified. The point being that spiritual experience is not the means of spiritual growth. So don't look for it. Don't seek spiritual experience. There is something we ought to be paying attention to. And it says that right here, that Peter wants to confirm to his readers something more sure and more authentic than the experience, the actual, the genuine experience they had when they saw the glory of Christ. That Peter is saying here, listen, there is something more, a more sure witness, a more reliable informant to help you produce and grow in your faith. And what is it? Well, he mentions it in verse number 19, and that's really where I want you to look at. Uh, this morning, he's talking about the prophetic word. Uh, he wants them to pay attention to the Old and to the New Testament scripture, at least for four important reasons. The first reason is because the scripture is more certain, firm, to which you do well to pay attention. He's saying, listen, don't pay attention to even authentic experience, pay attention to the sure word of God. And prophetic here refers to all scripture. Pay attention to the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament scripture. That is the message of Christ's first coming as the suffering servant and also the second coming in glory to bring human history to its long-planned destiny, that Scripture is reliable. 
because, and the reason why is it because it never changes as God never changes. It's like what the psalmist said in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the first thing that we, we why we need to pay attention to Scripture is because it is reliable. The second reason is found in verse number 19 also. It says, so that you have a, have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Meaning that secondly, the scriptures are light. They are illuminating. The scriptures have all have always been light, as the Old Testament has always communicated to those who follow the Lord. If we go back and look at the Old Testament for a minute, Psalm 119, that massive psalm, what does what the psalmist say there in that psalm? He, he writes this in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He also says in verse 130 of that psalm, the unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. And then even Proverbs tells us, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. See, only the word of God can adequately penetrate darkness concerning the reality of spiritual things. See, the world is spiritually dark and morally debased, and only the light of Scripture and those who possess the light can expose the darkness that sin has caused with the gospel of light. And, of course, that gospel leads one to safety. It leads one to salvation. It's when the Apostle John said in John chapter 3, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. That's He's talking about Christ there. And men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. In verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So this whole thing about Scripture is that Scripture is like a torch illuminating a murky room. It shows up all the dirt. It shows up all the error. It exposes the darkness that is in the world all around us, and the darkness even in the human heart. It helps us to avoid the wrong way. It helps us to know God and his ways better, that the light of Scripture will keep you on the straight and narrow path. It will keep you from falling into the filth all around you in a morally crooked world. And then there's a third thing about the the reason why we should pay attention to the Word of God is because Scripture is truth. In other words, it's revealing. It says, here in the word of God, until, verse number 19, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. 
So scripture informs us of the plans of God from beginning to the end. There will be an event of a new day. So the Bible is, is uh, the word of God is telling us, so take heed, take heed that the light of God's word, uh, take heed in the light of God's word until the morning star, that is, the light of the world returns. And the light of the world is who? Is Jesus Christ. In other words, he is saying here, listen, we are to live in this way. This revealing truth is telling us a day is coming, and that day is going to reveal to us the one who came first is coming again because he is the light of the world that will return. In fact, it tells us in Revelation 22 verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and the morning star. So just as Venus, the planet or the star, is the brightest at dawn and signal signals a new day, so we are looking forward to the day Christ returns and the consummation of God's plan for humanity is complete. It's all wrapped up. And then, if you notice right there in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he mentions the day again, where he says, by, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then again in chapter 3, verse number 10 of Second Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then again, in chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the morning star arises in your heart may refer to the anticipation in a Christian's heart when they see and understand the clear signs of the coming of Christ, and especially the coming of Christ that is approaching. We just think for a minute the coronavirus that we're all experiencing now in a very strange and unusual way, God is reminding us of the birth pains before the coming of the Lord, that things are wearing out. This old world is wearing out. Things are breaking down. Things are moving to a conclusion. And one of those, the the biggest end of the conclusion is that Christ is coming. In fact, it also may include the, the anticipation of the full experience of eternal life in his presence. When we are in the presence of the morning star, when we come to that day, what does 1 John 3, chapter 3, verse 2 tell us? Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him 
because we will see him as he is. Now, those who are premillennial teach that the kingdom cannot be ushered in until Christ himself comes and establishes it. That is, that Jesus will return visibly to earth before the kingdom age. They believe that the kingdom of God will be a literal, earthly kingdom of a thousand years. And during that time, Jesus will reign over the earth from Jerusalem. That the kingdom will arrive suddenly and powerfully, and when Jesus returns from heaven to destroy his enemy, Satan, at that time will be removed from the earth for a period of a thousand years of of that kingdom. And of course, the effects of the curse of sin will be lifted, and believers from the Old Testament and Christians from the present age will be resurrected and reign with Jesus over the earth. Now, I believe the, the present Christians will be that those who come out of the tribulation, but before that, the church will come back with Christ. We would have been raptured out already and come back with Christ. So while we wait for this day to approach, it is a good motive for godly and holy living. Even Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This waiting for the coming of Christ and depending upon the word of God and the truth it says about his coming is where we ought to park because it's going to give us a greater understanding and a glimpse of an anticipation of that day. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for our Lord to come back again. But there's one other thing why we need to pay attention to the word of God. And that's in verse 20 and 21. And it's this. Because scripture originates with God. Not man. That means scripture, because it originates with God, is trustworthy. It is trustworthy. You hear people say, oh, the Bible's just written by men. But when you look at this passage of scripture, you'll say, no, the Bible's not just written by men. But the men that did write, what kind of men were they? What was the source of their material that they wrote? Where did it come from? Look what it says in verse number 20 and 21. It says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the word of God never had its origin in the impulse or desire or whim or will of men. They didn't think it up themselves. They couldn't think it up themselves. The word of God is not the product of human thoughts, genius, cleverness, or study. Divine revelation given to its authors and their interpretation of it was directed by the Holy Spirit. That's what the passage says. The Holy Spirit controlled every word 
and ensured that every word, every jot and every tittle, the uh, smallest letters of the Hebrew alphabet and were the words he wanted to use and the thoughts he wanted to express. That all scripture was superintended by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. That holy men were carried along by the Spirit like a sail, a, a sailing ship moved by the wind. They wrote the scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and divine. See, the scriptures are the communication that has been ordained by God's authority and produced by the enabling of his spirit. So prophecies did not originate in the prophets' own thinking, even in the Old Testament. The prophets didn't study to get their message. God gave them direct revelation, and then they spoke and wrote, and then they studied after they gave the prophecy. So the prophecies didn't originate with the prophet's own thinking, but from God's mind. Even Amos tells us that surely the Lord does not does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsels to his servants, the prophets. Now, let me just step back for a moment and explain two theological terms. The first one is revelation. Revelation is the actual process or activity in which God discloses or revealed information about himself and other matters to mankind. It involved general or natural details as the created, uh, the created star-filled sky, where the Psalm 19 tells us the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And then, of course, it involves the special revelation, the process where God gave the scriptures and used special holy men, apostles and prophets and others as infallibly directed and superintended by the Holy Spirit to write the words of the Bible. So then, Revelation is God's act of giving his word, revealing his word to man. But revealing was not enough. The word of God also had to be, and the second word is inspired. Inspiration describes the quality of the Bible. That resulted when God gave the scriptures. It is God's act of sealing his word with perfection and inerrancy, since God, in in a real sense, is the author of Scripture that guarantees that there could have been no flaws or errors in the Scriptures which he gave. Inspiration actually refers to both the source and the quality of the written product, the Bible, the Bible words, not the writers, not the paper, not the ink, And of course, the Greek word theopanestos really is the word theogod. Panestos is either spirit or breath, meaning that it was God-breathed. It was God-breathed. And this word, theopanestos, is an adjective that describes the quality of 
Scripture. Now, that word, of course, comes up in Scripture in Second Peter, where it says all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good word or good deed. And, of course, there is verbal inspiration, which means that the very words that God gave are inspired. Direct Holy Spirit inspiration applies only to the originally written words. And then there is plenary inspiration, which means the whole Bible, every original word is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. And this also means that the exact wording is inspired, that the Holy Spirit sovereignly moved and guided and directed and led the writers so that they wrote without error as he directly inspired the words and the sentences without even altering their personality or their manner of writing. The exact words and even the letters that God directly inspired are forever forever settled and cannot be changed. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your words, your word is settled in heaven. They are flawless because the God who gave them is flawless. So then, the Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible is God's product And any copy or translation that we hold today that accurately says the same thing the original Bible said is considered to be the inspired word of God. Now, it does not mean that translations are flawless or incapable of being improved. They are because we're learning more. Every good translation, such as the Tyndale Bible and the King James and the New King James and the New American Standard Bible 1977 and the New American Standard Bible 1995 and other English versions like the ESV, these are definitely the inspired word of God. They have been tested, but no translation is or ever will be perfect or flawless. All can be improved. In fact, right now, The New American Standard Bible is in the process of being improved and will be coming soon. This is for your information, by the way. It's called the Legacy Bible. The New American Standard Bible will come out either on 2020 or 2021. And the improvements are going to be subtle. Um, The improvements are being made by the Master's Seminary faculty, the Lachman Foundation, that had the rights to the New American Standard Bible actually gave the copyrights to the Master's Seminary in California. And they did that because John MacArthur has preached through the Bible and has written commentaries based on the Greek text of the New American Standard Bible. And because he has been faithful with the text of Scripture, the Lachman Foundation made the historic move uh, to give it to them to make any subtle changes they need to make. And of course, uh, some of those subtle changes will be like uh, the Old Testament. Dave's been mentioning in Sunday school, the Old Testament Hebrew word for Lord will be translated properly for the name of God when it comes up in its context. 
And then, of course, in the New Testament, the Greek word slave will be translated as slave. Instead of sometimes they replace the word slave for servant, and that's not the correct rendering. So that will be changed. And then other subtle changes will be made based on a more precise, accurate, and tested information. Now, they're doing this for this reason, because they want to leave a Bible, a a legacy for the next generation, because the next generation uh, needs a good Bible to be to know that it is it is accurate to the original and is trustworthy and all those things. So that means because the scriptures are reliable, illuminating, revealing, and trustworthy, we should give them prompt and unquestioning acceptance and submission to their teachings. If this book, the Word of God, If this book is the word of God, and it is, how foolish to submit its teaching to the criticism of a finite mind or finite reason. When we are once satisfied that the Bible is the word of God, it is clear in its teachings, then it will end the controversy, it will end the discussion, it will be the final rule and authority for all life of godliness. To those who love it, know it, know its author, and know what it says about the Lord's coming. The Bible does us no good if we do not read it, if we do not hear it, if we do not meditate upon it, if we don't finally obey it and love it. The word of God is the power that will sustain the Christian as they walk with God because they know that the Bible is the source of truth. It is, the, is, it is the source of power. It is the source of guidance, of victory, of God's blessing, and of spiritual growth. If you or I neglect or ignore God's word, you become prey We all become prey to our own laziness, spiritual blindness, and to all kinds of false teaching and religious error. So as you and I await the coming of Christ, let's stick close to the word of God for all truth, for all life, for guidance for living holy and godly lives. Now, why should you and I store away scripture in our mind and heart? because of all that the Bible says about it. It says it will keep you from sin. Psalm 119, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It will fill your heart with joy. Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have called, I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. It will fill your mind with peace. It will give you victory over the evil one, where the Apostle John said in his epistle in 1 John, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one, it will give you power in prayer. It will make you wiser than the aged and your enemies. It tells us in Psalm, I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. It will keep you from false doctrine. It will make you complete, furnished completely. And of course, for every good work that God wants you to do, it will grow you 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Long for the milk of the word, it says. To crave it. To greatly desire it. It's an intense desire. And of course, the object is the pure milk. And it is really pointing to the relentless cry of an infant. For one thing, it craves its mother's milk. They say eight to 15 times a day, the baby will crave its mother's milk. Depending on how how many ounces is being fed the child. We all heard the cries of a hungry baby. And the cries of a hungry baby demand, if you want to be sane, a rapid reply, an intensity that must be satisfied only by the pure milk of the mother. So the whole longing thing for the word of God is not a new thing. It's been an Old Testament concept from the beginning where the psalmist says, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances. He says again, I long for your precepts. Again, I open my mouth wide and pant, and I long for your commandments. Even Job tells us that I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So this craving metaphor is not just for new or infant Christians, but for all Christians at all times who are at all levels of spiritual growth, that Christians are to exemplify this in their intense yearning for the uncontaminated, unadulterated, pure spiritual milk of the eternal word of God that is reliable and revealing and illuminating and uh, trustworthy. So the purpose of this nourishment for the pure milk of the word is for the believer to grow into the full experience of their salvation. That the word of God will literally grow you. Therefore, the Christians should take no spiritual nourishment but the word of God. Christians should never settle for so-called spiritual junk food, and they should not settle for seeking experiences as some authentic, verifiable standard for truth or that God's working in one's life. It is not. What is verifiable and objective is the Word of God. So the Word of God is the means of spiritual maturity. The Word of God is the spiritual food for your soul. It is spiritual in the sense that the Word is reasonable or is the logical way for Christians to become what God wishes them to be spiritually. So you want to desire spiritual food like a baby, but you don't want to stay immature like a baby. You don't want to remain scrawny spiritually or susceptible to false teaching. You want to diligently progress in your sanctification. Now, how does that take place? Well, Just quickly, there are three, at least three steps in the biblical design for sanctification. All scripture is living and transformative in that it will, it'll transform your mind, right? It'll change how you think. It'll change how you view the world. It'll change how you view yourself. 
how you view the past and the, and the future and the present. What does it say in Scripture? Sanctifying them in truth, the word of God is truth. Also, it will transform your will. That you will develop deep convictions. Matter of fact, you will develop deep principles that you will not want to violate uh, once the word of God transforms your mind and your conscience and your will. You'll want to now, in other words, you'll have a clear understanding of what God wants you to do and you'll not want to violate that. You're going to have deep convictions. And we need deep convictions uh, today in people more than ever for what's coming and with all the stuff flying around out there, we need to have convictions based in the Word of God that you've been, uh, the Spirit of God has been formulating in your heart because of the truth of Scripture, because that's growing you. And then, of course, that will transform your affections. That you'll love the truth, and loving the truth is equal and will bring you to love God. It will bring you there. That the truth will bring you to appreciate Christ in his fullness knowing and loving him thoroughly. Again, in the Psalms, it tells us, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then in Psalm 19.10, they are more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. And then that famous Psalm in Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. So scripture will not let us forget that Jesus is coming. My question is, are you ready? Are you diligently pursuing your spiritual growth, your own sanctification? Or have you been living on the low road and just following your own desires and passions, seeking experiences and things like that, and you're not fulfilled, you, you, you are not growing, you are not being fruitful. Matter of fact, you're probably quite miserable, and you're probably quite frustrated because of that. Well, it's time to take the human side of your salvation more seriously now than you ever have and put the strenuous effort into your spiritual development and stay walking with the Spirit of God and keep your eyes on the coming of the Lord, because the coming of the Lord is the next great event of the church. And did you know that out of the 318 references to the second coming, that one, uh, that 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to that a great event, that every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on Christ's second coming. So for every one of the first coming, there's eight for the second coming. That means that the Bible is telling us that the Christ is coming again. Be sure of that. And one way to establish you in that is the word of truth because it's more sure than anything else on this planet. And it doesn't change because God is the author. In Christ, I pray all this. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, thank you that we have it available to us.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is in our possession presently that we can study it, we can meditate upon it, we can hear it preached, we can, Lord, uh, just know that it comes from you and that we are confident that what you tell us is the truth and it is accurate and, Lord, because it comes from your very breath. And so, Lord, I pray every day that you would enable us and help us to live our life in light of your coming. And as we do that, we would become students of the word of God. And we know, Lord, the word of God will establish us in our spiritual maturity so we can be fruitful believers. Until you come, make us faithful for your sake. Amen.